coming to you from the Motor City. Hello and welcome to the podcast. Today we have an interview with Dr. Sarah Avichmit, a forensic pathologist currently working in California. Dr. Avichmit was a fellow with us and frequently returns to the office as a locum tenens. Stay tuned. Hi, and welcome back to Detroit's Daily Doctor. Today, we're going to continue our series of talking with other pathologists throughout the country and to get their perspective on what forensic practice is in their office. And today, we have a special guest with us. Actually, all of our guests are special, but this one has a special place in our heart. Here we have Dr. Sarah Evichman. Dr. Wynn, can you give us a little intro? Of course. Just like Dr. Sung, I am so excited to introduce our guest, Dr. Sarah Avichman. Dr. Avichman received her medical degree in 2013 from Loma Linda University School of Medicine. She completed her training in anatomic and clinical pathology at the University of Michigan. She then stayed on and did her one-year forensic pathology fellowship with the University of Michigan, again, which includes Washtenaw and Wayne County Medical Examiner's offices. On a personal note, I can honestly say I would not have done my fellowship at the University of Michigan without Dr. Avishmit's help. I first met her while I was on my residency autopsy rotation at the Wayne County Medical Examiner's office when she was a fellow. Dr. Avishmit put up with me as an annoying resident, and she was a guiding force in my education and currently in my career. Right now, Dr. Avishmit is working as a locum tenens forensic pathologist in both Michigan and California. Many of our listeners may know her due to her great Twitter and Instagram page. And if you don't, go visit it at 4N6Doctora. Welcome, Dr. Avishmit. Hi, Dr. Song and Dr. Wynn. Thank you so much for having me. It's so awesome to be here. I've been following the podcast and it's been so awesome. Well, it's definitely our pleasure to have you on. Now, we have a bunch of questions, which we eventually will get to. But right now, I... Regret that we can't actually have mm-hmm. you in studio because of COVID-19, of course, and the fact that you are in so many states away from us. Mm-hmm. Just a general question overall, what made you interested in forensic pathology, or why don't you describe to us path to becoming a medical examiner forensic pathologist? Sure. So I like to say that forensic pathology kind of found me because I had multiple exposures to it as a student and going along the way, but I never really... I was so indecisive, I could never really just decide on it. So I had all these multiple exposures, and um, ultimately, I'd like to say that it it found me. Um, As for my path to becoming a forensic pathologist, I didn't know right away that I wanted to be one. And I I was always envious of the the people that knew what they wanted to do when they grew up, because I always felt like it gives you drive and a purpose. So I ended up choosing a college based on a cross-country and track and field scholarship. Mm -hmm. And since I didn't have a vision for my future, I just decided to choose subjects that I liked. And I ended up double majoring in Spanish and psychology. So Mm -hmm. I graduated in three years with the plan that I was going to go to South America and teach English for a year, Mm -hmm. which I did. But I still didn't know what I wanted to do. So I kind of used that year to do a lot of soul searching. Mm-hmm. Um, and I came up with two things that I feel like are very important to me that I wanted to have in a career. So I decided that I wanted to have something that 
would be challenging and that I would never get bored with. Mm -hmm. And then also something where I could feel like I was helping people or helping society and had a good purpose. So that led me to applying to medical school. And like I said, I still didn't really have an idea what I wanted to do, but I just figured this would accomplish those two goals. Um, but because I majored in Spanish and psychology, I had to go back to school to take all of the prerequisite mm. courses for medical school. Uh, so I went to Loyola University in Chicago. Um, and it was during this time that I was able to get a research position at the Cook County Medical Examiner's Office. So I would extract data from autopsy reports. And this data was used for the Illinois Violent Death Reporting System, which is a statewide system that is part of the National Violent Death Reporting System. Uh, so these systems use data from violent deaths and they use them for public health purposes. So I would go in, look at all the cases and um, extract the data that was needed for these reporting systems. I have to say, I was just fascinated by the office. I worked in a small room that had one window that led to the body cooler. And then the room adjacent to the room where I worked was where the families would identify their loved ones. So it was pretty creepy, but just walking into the office every day and reading through the autopsy reports, the stories, the investigation, I found it, I was so curious about what went on behind the scenes. And I was actually able to observe an autopsy while I was there, and I, I just thought it was fascinating. However, this didn't really seal the deal for me. I still went into medical school with an open mind. Um, I started medical school at San Juan Bautista School of Medicine in Puerto Rico. And due to some unforeseen circumstances in my beginning of my third year, I ended up transferring to medical school in Loma Linda in California. And that's where I ended up graduating. But it was during this time about my third year where I had a big identity crisis. And I, you know, I was going through all these rotations in third year. And I'm sorry to say, while I enjoyed a lot of aspects of them, I just could not envision myself doing any of the specialties for the rest of my life. So I got, you know, to the point where I was like, should I just finish medical school and do something different? Should I pick a residency that's just the shortest residency to just try to get out of medicine? Um, I found myself as so introverted that by the end of the day in clinic or even surgery, I was mentally, emotionally exhausted. And so I had to go back to the drawing board and try to consider specialties that were more behind the scenes. Mm -hmm. um, and that's where pathology came in. But because of my transfer, I was actually behind in credits about like, I think three months of credits for school. So in order to graduate in four years, I had to make the decision to apply to residency before I even did a rotation in pathology. Wow. So I went to just back to the drawing board and made a list of pros and cons of all the different specialties that I could potentially be interested in. And pathology won. Um, I applied to pathology and crossed my fingers. <laughs> I knew it was a risk, but luckily it worked out. Um, I had a great residency experience at the University of Michigan. And then forensic pathology quickly stood out as a very strong autopsy program. And I was able to do a rotation in forensic pathology at the Wayne County Medical Examiner's Office, where I worked with Dr. Sung, and uh, that definitely sealed the deal for me. So that's my long story about <laughs> how I ended up with forensic pathology. I had multiple exposures along mm -hmm. the way, but just being being indecisive and not in I found it hard to envision myself what I would want to be doing for the rest of my life, but I definitely love forensic pathology and I think it's a great field. 
Oh, it's very interesting to have Dr. Averschmidt, and I learned quite a few things. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I like listening to both of your bios, too. I learned <laughs> a lot about you, too, as well. I think it's really nice to let people know that you don't have to have concrete, exactly. chiseled in your mind what you're going to do. We come from all different walks of life in all different regions of the country, all different experiences, and anybody can go into this profession. And I think also just in general for right, medical students, people interested in medicine, that always keep an open mind. I think mm-hmm. that was like one of the lessons I learned, and it sounds like for you, and I don't know, I think for you too, Dr. Sung, that always keep an open mind. And if you really enjoy something, you can pursue it. I agree completely. You know, that you hear along the way, especially in medical school, there's always the different doctors of different specialties telling you not to do this mm-hmm. or that. But just to keep an open mind and, you know, stick to what's important to you mm-hmm. and uh, you'll find something that you you enjoy. Is there an area of forensic pathology that you gravitate to or gravitate away from? I think, you know, I'm still so young and green in my career, but I think I'm gravitating towards, uh, I do like research and I like teaching. Uh, that's an outside part, you know, a peripheral part of our job as a forensic pathology a forensic pathologist, but I, I don't have a, a niche yet. I still rely on all my mentors for uh, <laughs> their expertise. Me too, Dr. Sung, right? Dr. Sung <laughs> yeah. No, but I think and teaching is really important, and um, I also enjoy teaching, um, and I think uh, that's what we're trying to do here is promote our field. Exactly, and forensic pathology being such an underexposed field yes. for medical students and residents, I think I get a lot of joy, you know, in exposing students that might be interested that mm-hmm. that not otherwise had a chance to either even learn about it. What has been some of your biggest challenges in your first few years? I think my biggest challenge is going into a practice that was completely different than what I did in fellowship. So coming from a single office, mm-hmm. medical examiner's office to to working in all these different mm-hmm. places. So a lot of times I find myself working alone on a a case. I don't have all of these other forensic pathologists nearby that I can just um, show my case to. But it has allowed me to get very creative and, um, you know, definitely relying on a lot of my mentors. Luckily, with technology, we have the opportunity. I can stop a case right in the middle of it. I, I can, you know, get on FaceTime. So luckily, the limits are less with technology. But I think just transitioning to... Um, working as a fellow with having a, a bunch of pathologists around to ask questions, to working alone and, um, you know, really relying on your own knowledge. For those of us who are starting off, is there any advice that you wish you had um, coming out of fellowship and starting your career? I was actually advised, I think, along the way to just not go to California, not go to <laughs> work in a sheriff corner office and not go somewhere where you'll be the only forensic pathologist. So I think I did all all of the <laughs> things that I was told not to do, um, but I think that it can still work out, and you just have to to rely uh, a lot on your training and rely on um, the people that have trained you to to know your limits and to know what you don't know. Every Friends of Pathology Fellowship will be a little bit different, and each office has their own style. But you have to remember that all of our offices. And all of the teachers and instructors there will really put forth all of their effort to train you up. So I'm not saying it doesn't matter where you train. It absolutely does. But 
you will have that knowledge. You will have that experience when you go practice. And that support system, too. Mm-hmm. I think um, you, where you train, they become your mentors, but I think lifelong colleagues and support. I agree. And our community is so small with, yeah. what, 500 forensic pathologists mm-hmm. that um, really having those, those people you can rely on is important. Uh, just as Dr. Wynn mentioned, you are currently one of our locum tenants. Can you just describe for the audience uh, what that means for those that aren't familiar with that term? So locum tenens is a word used that kind of, I think, would be interchangeable with what I use as an independent contractor. So you're contracted for a place to work as needed. And you're, you're not an employee, so you don't get paid a salary with benefits. You just work for the cases that you do. I have a clinical appointment with the University of Michigan and the Wayne County Medical Examiner's Office as an adjunct clinical instructor. And I get to come back to Detroit and work there as needed. Is locum tenens pretty common in the forensic world? I would say it depends on the county. The busier offices tend to have more of a need for locums. So they have their fully staffed offices, but when they get overload of cases, they will use locum tenens to do the extra cases. Here in California, uh, we have a different setup. In Northern California, most of the offices uh, employ forensic pathologists as independent contractors as a pair compared to full-time employees. In case someone is interested in doing that, a resident or a forensic fellow, how did you get involved with becoming a locum tenant? So I just came into it by chance. So when I finished training, my husband is also in medicine and he is an ER physician and he's two years behind me in school. We met in medical school. So when It came time for me to choose residency. I decided I wanted to go to University of Michigan. And at that point, I promised him that I would move to Sacramento after we finished training if he would follow me to Michigan for training. So we ended up out in Sacramento because that's where he's from. Um, Being an ER doctor, he got a job right away. But with forensic pathology, we're more limited to the county setup. So when I was trying to find a job out here, it just so happened that Sacramento County was fully staffed. So I didn't have any opportunity locally to work full time. So Sacramento was kind enough to give me a small contract as a locum tenens. So I worked for them as a contractor. But in the meantime, when I was trying to find more work, it just turns out that there's a lot of offices nearby that need a lot of help as well. And so over time, I've gradually increased the amount of counties that I have, and I work solely as an independent contractor. So I think for people that might want to get into it, it just depends on the location that you want to work. Some offices don't need uh, locums, some offices do, and it just really depends. I would suggest calling different offices and, and seeing what their need is individually. Do you find that there is a shortage of work? No, definitely not. With the shortage of forensic pathologists nationally, there's really just as much work as you could want to do and more. Any office is looking for people to do cases. And so I find that I'm more so turning down work than needing to find work these days. In essence, as much as you want to. The opportunities are available. (laughs) Yes. Uh, Here in Michigan, the offices are medical examiner offices. From my understanding, that's not exactly the same as in California. Can you describe that? 
Correct. So in California, we have a mix of medical examiner offices, coroner offices, and sheriff coroner offices. So I believe there's 58 counties and 42 of them are sheriff coroner counties, 10 of them are coroner counties. One of them is a physician coroner county. There's two medical examiner coroner combined offices, and then there are four medical examiner offices. So this is different compared to, like you said, in Michigan, where all of the offices in Michigan are medical examiner offices. I'm sure all of the employees work to their fullest professional extent, but there must be some differences between that type of structure. Yeah, there are quite a few differences, and it really comes down to who's the head of the office. So in a medical examiner system, the head of the office is the chief forensic pathologist. So the head of the office is a physician. Um, Compared to coroner offices or sheriff coroner offices, the head of the office is not the forensic pathologist, but it is the the administrator in death investigation. So in a sheriff coroner offices, the sheriff is the head of the coroner office. In a coroner office, the uh, coroner, which is a citizen, not a physician, is the head of the office. Do you find that having the either the sheriff coroner or the coroner being more of a lay person, do you think that they have a stronger tie to the community? That's a good question. And I think it does allow them more of a tie to the community. For example, in a sheriff's office, the sheriff is overseeing so many things in the community and the death investigation is just one part of them. Now you trained with us as our fellow. And you know how this office runs in Wayne County. What are some of the differences that you've noticed between our office and where you work in California? So I'd say the biggest difference is the volume. Wayne County stands out with just the incredible volume of cases. Wayne County being very large in itself, but just the volume and complexity of cases can't be compared. The other thing with Wayne County having the affiliation with the University of Michigan provides a very strong academic background as well. Um, that's something I definitely miss in the other offices that I work in is having that that academic background. And just in reference to California compared to Michigan, can you describe kind of the type of cases that you have in California? You know, over here in Michigan, we do have a lot of drug and natural and homicide related cases. Is it different in Northern California? I'd say we still get the typical mix of uh, drug, natural, accidents, homicides. But one thing that I have noticed just anecdotally, and I think it's confirmed by the data as well, is that we have a very different set of overdose cases. So in Detroit, I remember getting a lot of opioid deaths, Mm -hmm. a lot of fentanyl deaths. But in California, it's very rare for me to see those opioid deaths, and I see methamphetamine deaths uh, daily. Mm. I think I had maybe one methamphetamine death in Detroit the entire time I've worked there. Is there a reason for that, just drug availability? That's a good question, and I don't know the answer, but maybe drug availability and um, just what's what's popular. Mm -hmm. From my understanding, California has increased restrictions on firearm usage. Do you see that reflected in the types of homicides you see? That's an interesting question. And I think I've heard anecdotally that we do have less firearm deaths, but I I definitely still see them. And I see them just as much as other types of homicidal violence. 
in working with different offices, a part of our profession is court testimony. Do you find that it's difficult to go from one jurisdiction mm-hmm. to another or one city to another? So I've only been out of training for two years, and one of those years has been this pandemic year. So my experience with testimony out of fellowship has been very limited. With most courts closing this past year or pretty much slowing down, I have um, not done much testimony. But I think in regular practice, it can be difficult because you might do a case in one county and then they need you to testify, but you live in another county. And so that can be very difficult. Um, It has not been an issue for me yet, but I, I can anticipate that it could be in the future. Luckily, most of the offices that I work in Uh, nearby or within an hour, an hour and a half. So it's doable. Something that we've experienced here because, just like you said, because of the pandemic, we've done testimony via virtual means such as Zoom Mm -hmm. and or Polycom. So Mm -hmm. that has uh, good points and bad points Mm -hmm. to virtual testimony. I know I actually, I think both myself and Dr. Wynn has experienced that. Yeah. Um, Advantages being the exposure to other people, people with COVID uh, decreases the exposure. So some of the great advantages that way. Yeah, absolutely. With cases that I've had in Detroit, I've been able to do a couple of Mm -hmm. virtual depositions where otherwise I would have had to travel to Michigan. So Mm -hmm. it really opens up a lot of doors for some basic testimony or meetings that you might need to have that you don't necessarily have to do in person. You were describing how you may be working in different counties. Could you uh, tell us uh, how that affects your autopsies when you go to different offices, um, maybe the advantages and disadvantages of that? Sure. So I think I definitely miss working in one place like in Wayne County where you have one office. You you can get used to all of your technicians. You have Mm -hmm. all of your pathologists nearby where you can just go down the office and ask a question Mm -hmm. if you have a question on a case. Um, but working in multiple counties, I would say some, the most difficult thing is, you know, trying to be as flexible as possible because mm-hmm. every office has their way of doing things, whether it's their way of eviscerating or their way of investigating cases. So I think just trying to be flexible and um, not have not have one way set in stone that you have to do it, I think, can be a, a difficult thing. The benefit is that I have a lot of autonomy. And like I mentioned, I have young kids and a husband that has a busy job as well. So just having the autonomy to be able to say which days I can work, which days I can't work, and, um, you know, how far I want to drive this day or not is a huge advantage. So you talk about going to different offices. So how does that work? Do you bring your own tools uh, to these offices? Are they equipped mostly the same in California? Or do you always have a tech or a deaner? That's a good question. And I would say it depends on the office. Most of them have full morgues with full tools and everything. I've kind of followed the path of Dr. Sung after um, realizing the importance of a sharp knife. Mm -hmm. And so I tend to bring my knife, which I hone myself as taught by Dr. Sung. Taught well. And I bring that that to work with me just because the last thing I want is a dull knife. Mm -hmm. And that's the one thing I controlled. Besides that, they provide the assistant, they provide all the tools, they provide the facility, and I just come in with my knife and do my work. Do you have a forensic photographer working with you? So, no, that is one of the things that I really miss from 
fellowship is that we do not have a forensic photographer in any of the offices that I work with. So in Detroit, there's uh, multiple forensic photographers who are trained photographers that take excellent photos. But in the offices that I work at here, the forensic pathologist has to take them themselves. So that just is a little more difficult because you're you're doing the case, your hands are dirty, you get to the point where you want to take a photo, you have mm-hmm. to clean off your hands, take off your gloves, set up a clean station and take the photo. And it's just, it's more time consuming. And then plus the comparison of a photo that I would take compared to a photo that the forensic photographers would take is you just really can't compare. So I I really miss that aspect. But it just depends where you work. Some offices have them, some don't. Uh, The offices I tend to work in here are more of the rural offices. So it wouldn't makes sense for them them to employ a full-time forensic photographer, but they are definitely helpful. Is that the same for radiology? Yeah, so radiology, the Lodox is probably the, you know, I'm saying all these things I miss, but I really miss the Lodox. (laughs) So in Detroit, there's a a full-body x-ray machine called the Lodox, and it takes a full-body x-ray in, what is it, 12 seconds? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, right Mm -hmm. about. Mm -hmm. Right about 12 seconds, Um, whereas... In the the offices that don't have them, you rely on portable X-ray machines that have to be. You have to manually manipulate the body to take the X-rays of the different parts of the body. So, it's not as quick. It's more laborious physically. Luckily, we have assistants that are are trained to do it, but it just takes a lot more time. And then, if you get a case of a multiple gunshot wound with multiple Uh, projectiles Mm -hmm. in the body um, and you have to re-x-ray the body or trying to find a bullet, it just takes a lot more time. With the variability in the different offices that you visit, is there something that you wish you learned during fellowship that would really have helped you? Uh, I can't think of anything in particular. I would say having a fellowship where you work in two different offices with two different settings was a huge advantage. So I know it's been described on season one, but with the fellowship at Wayne County, you work at the Wayne County Medical Examiner's Office, but you also split time at Washtenaw County Medical Examiner's Office in Ann Arbor. So with those two offices, you already get a sense of how two different offices can be run and they can both be run well. Um, one office is, does one method of visceration, another office does another one. And so you kind of get just like that that background early on on how to do things different and to be to be flexible. How has COVID affected your work? I'm sure traveling decreased, but in general, how does it affect your work, your caseload in in either California or Michigan? Yeah, so I don't do the out-of-state traveling as much, but um, luckily my counties that I work in in Northern California are all within about an hour and a half's distance. But uh, I know every county is handling COVID different, but the ones here that I'm working in are not autopsy and COVID deaths. Mm. So we'll do postmortem nasopharyngeal swab mm-hmm. on cases of either suspected COVID or cases with symptoms. And then we have a large transient population. So we'll we'll swab the transient cases as well, just because their exposure is usually unknown. Uh, if we do get a positive case, we will do an external exam and sign out the cause of death without an autopsy. So it really hasn't increased the workload much. I remember there was that lull right when um, everything shut down where we really had a decreased amount of motor vehicle accidents, Um, but I think everything has picked right back up. Also, I could add that, you know, as forensic pathologists, we're wearing universal precautions. We 
were wearing N95s before the general public knew what that meant. And we wear face shields, we wear full gowns. So um, our PP has not really changed. One of the things that our office experienced was a decrease in the supply of the N95 respirator. So a decision that we made was to switch over from the N95 respirator to a PEPR system, a powered air purifying respirator. So it's this essentially this helmet that you wear, and it has an external air supply that filters the air for, and delivers it to the user. I know it's changed practice in many different offices, but similar to you, we have increased caseload, but not necessarily because we are autopsying individuals with COVID-19, but in general, our caseloads have been increasing. Being uh, a locum, and as you said, working alone, is there anything that keeps you up at night? I want to say my kids, <laughs> but um, other than that, you know, I tend to be, you know, nighttime is my one time to just turn everything <laughs> off and sleep. And I, part of the reason why I, I had to choose pathology is because I'm an eight to nine hour sleeper at night. So nothing can, nothing can keep me up. But um, no, there's always those cases that are, that are difficult. And you're always wondering, um, you're thinking, what what could I have done differently? Or did I do everything right? Or should I have taken this? And you're second guessing yourself. Mm -hmm. But um, those cases are unavoidable. But I try to just turn it off for, for nighttime. Now, where do you see yourself, in, let's say, five years from now? I think five years from now, I'll probably be doing a similar uh, setup as to what I have now. Um, I really like the variety that I have. Like I said, I wanted a career that I would never be bored. And I think being able to work in different offices with different people and all different kinds of um, different types of death investigation systems, I think uh, that variety really suits me. So I, I think I'll be doing the same thing I'm doing now. Tying in with the future, where do you see the future of forensic pathology going? I think the future of forensic pathology is so tied into the the shortage of forensic pathologists, that it's really hard to know what the future will be like. Uh, as the population increases, the, the amount, the caseload will only continue to increase. And with the shortage of forensic pathologists, I, it, it's really hard to know how the future will, will go. On a lighter note, Dr. Evan Schmidt, we asked this of all of our guests. If you were stuck on a desert island that just happens to have electricity... <laughs> What would be the one autopsy tool that you would want to bring with you? You know, I I don't think I could go without my knife. And now that I know what a, how important a sharp knife is, I think it would be my knife. And I would have to try to find something to hone it or sharpen it on the <laughs> island. Um, but you can do a lot of stuff in an mm -hmm. autopsy, but you, it's hard to survive without your knife. As we're wrapping up, Dr. Abishman, what superpower do you wish you had? Okay, so I'd say not pathology related, but I would really like to be able to be invisible because as an introvert, you you can fly under the radar a lot. You don't have to make small talk with people. You can just go about your work and uh, and do it, it easily. But I know that doesn't make pathologists sound very friendly. <laughs> we actually do like talking to people, but um, in, invisibility would just be pretty cool. 
Now you say that, but I think that you do have a pretty strong presence in the social media yeah. world. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so I started a an Instagram account when I was in fellowship because I just really wanted to be able to show other students or other people that are interested in what a career in forensic pathology is like because it just is so it's not something that you get exposed to and so I started it I have a hard time keeping up with regular posting but I like to post interesting pictures or cases nothing recent or relevant or any cases that are ongoing in in the legal system but I just like to be able to show students or interested people in, in what forensic pathology is like because you know as we all know there's a lot of different things on uh, TV whether it's CSI or different shows that portray our field very incorrectly so it's nice to have to be able to show it yourself. Well, Dr. Eversley I had a great time talking with you and I learned a lot really I did and at some point in time when you are physically in the mm -hmm. building we'll get you in studio and we'll do this again. I'd love that. Thank you guys so much for having me. It's been an honor to be a part of this podcast, and I'm really excited for you guys as you as you continue on with the season. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for joining us on Detroit's Daily Docket. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Detroit's Daily Docket. Our theme song is Living by Read the Sun, and our podcast cover art is by Hollow Wicked Prince. Thank you for listening.